Welcome to Health or Consequences, the podcast of Commonwealth Magazines devoted to healthcare and public health policy. I'm Paul Haddis, recently retired from Tufts University, here with my colleague, John McDonough from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And we're very excited today to have a guest we've been waiting to have on and until finally, as you'll hear in a moment, the, the merger that he's now seeing of two companies as the CEO or, or overseeing, Tom Croswell, CEO of the combined entity of the Tufts Health Plan and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, who have come together. And we're, we're delighted that's news that finalized this past month. And then even a couple of weeks after that, we learned that Tom announced the world uh, that he was going to be stepping back from a 50-year career uh, from Tufts and, and the health insurance field later this summer. So Tom, we're delighted to have you and we look forward to this conversation very much. Thank you. It's, uh, it's really great to be here. Hard to believe it's been 50 years, but uh, time, time does fly. And I think John's going to get us started today. I'll get started. Uh, thanks for joining us, Tom. It's a pleasure and honor to have you with us. So um, we, we read and we uh, learn that your new company, the merged company, expects to save at least $100 million from what are referred to as administrative synergies from the merger. Um, when and how will this be evident and how will it directly impact in a favorable way uh, consumers of the new company? Sure. Um, these synergies are going to be realized through the integration work, which has really just begun. Uh, we did a lot of planning um, on how to integrate the two companies, uh, but it wasn't until January 1st when we closed we could actually uh, begin work. It will take about five years to fully realize uh, those synergy savings. It takes a long time uh, to, to fully achieve them because the significant significant portion comes from eliminating duplicate infrastructure in the two companies and uh, removing um, that duplication without adversely impacting our customers takes very careful planning and execution. I mean, the example of that duplicate infrastructure are different uh, uh, computer systems that are used to pay claims. We will over time be moving to consolidate onto one platform. And again, that, that takes time and careful planning. The bulk of the savings that we will achieve uh, through this integration and synergy savings will be passed on to customers through premium savings. Um, as you know, our premium rates are filed and approved by the Department of Insurance. So these savings will be reflected in those rate filings. Uh, the Health Policy Commission has also indicated that at intends to be monitoring our progress. So we'll have some transparency in that regard as well. You know, beyond premium savings, we also will make investments consistent with our mission as a not-for-profit health plan. We, we didn't combine these two companies uh, to produce a, a return for shareholders. We don't have shareholders. We did it to further um, the achievement of our mission, which simply stated is to improve the health and wellness of the diverse communities we serve. So we're gonna be focused on things like um, access for all. We'll continue to provide coverage that works regardless of a person's age, health, race, identity, or income. We're gonna be focused on addressing racial justice and promoting health equity. An initial example in that area is the 
million dollar grants that we recently announced to community organizations to support education, outreach and support uh, on the vaccine to black and brown communities. Another area I would highlight is behavioral health. Uh, we will be prioritizing integration of medical and behavioral health management as a, as a major priority for the new organization. And um, you know, a final area that I would mention uh, beyond premium savings and investments we'll be making to streamline the consumer experience. Both companies have uh, uh, paid a lot of attention, invested uh, in the past around digital tools to help our members better navigate the, the fragmented healthcare system. We expect to continue those kinds of investments. And you know, here's an example of where uh, synergy savings can come in the form of the same dollar investment, but a broader application. We can eliminate really duplicate investments and use that uh, money to invest in a broader range of tools. So I think there's a, a lot of benefits, um, but I'd kind of start with premium savings. To Tom, will consumers and employers see products still named under their historical company names, Tufts and Harvard Pilgrim, and will there be a single name for the whole company? Uh, for this foreseeable future, we will continue to operate in the marketplace with our existing brands. You know, that's necessary just from a, a regulatory standpoint. Again, we need to file our products um, with regulatory bodies and we do it with our existing brand names. Um, so it's going to take a while for that process to play out. So for at least the next couple of years, we will operate uh, with our existing brands. Uh, we will be selecting a, a name, a new name for the parent company. And over time, we'll be developing a plan to you know, move that forward into the marketplace. But for the foreseeable future, expect to see our existing names. Tom, I move to a question. I think a lot of our podcast, a very sophisticated audience often is, is probably wondering about, and it has to do with the general market of healthcare services and insurance we have in Massachusetts. As you know, for a while now, we've had a very uh, consolidated provider market, and now you're coming together, your, your two plans uh, increases the consolidation on the insurance side, and most economists looking especially at the provider side, but even the insurance side say that we often don't see lower costs when those kinds of things happen. But I want you to take a look at our particular market here in Massachusetts, which now has the kind of consolidation I noted. And what should consumers really expect in terms of uh, premiums and uh, rate increases? Well, you know, the, the impact of consolidation of insurance companies is really very different than provider organization, for example. We, we really believe that our combination, combination will enhance market competition and result in premiums lower than they would have been absent this combination. And, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, we expect this combination to generate millions in savings, um, the bulk of which will be passed on directly to consumers through, through lower uh, premium increases. Um, these savings uh, were validated by economists as we worked through the regulatory uh, review process. You know, in addition to um, uh, in addition, uh, with our increased scale, um, we will work with providers on expanding alternative payment arrangements, uh, which we believe will make coverage more affordable and improve the quality of care. 
Um, you know that uh, a significant concern for providers entering into risk arrangements, these alternative forms of payment, can be the size of the covered pop population. Um, essentially doubling the size of our companies should eliminate some of those concerns and make it easier to expand the use of those alternative payment arrangements. You know, overall, um, we operate in a, a very competitive market and it will be no less so after our combination. We have very strong uh, local competitors and we have national um, health plans, insurance companies that are very active in, in our market. You know, a key element of competition is around price, um, premium levels. And for us to be successful going forward, we need to keep premiums as low as possible. So again, we don't really see this materially changing the competitive landscape and the pressure is on us uh, as much as ever to keep premiums as low as we can. Now you mentioned the national insurers and one of their divisions, Optum, actually now is going to be purchasing our largest independent nonprofit physician group, Atrius, or at least there's a, a memorandum of understanding to make that happen, and Optum's division of United Health. How do you see this particular purchase impacting uh, contracting and pricing in Massachusetts for physician services or hospital services? And, and is this a good thing or not? Well, you know, Atrius and uh, Reliant Medical Group, which is now um, as you know, uh, part of the Optum uh, family of companies, let's call it. Um, they've been important partners to both of our heritage organizations for many years. In fact, um, you know, Harvard Vanguard, which was kind of a forerunner to Atrius, was actually part of the Harvard Pilgrim organization for many, many years. Um, and we certainly understand the financial pressure that uh, Atrius has felt, which have been even greater uh, due to the pandemic. Um, you know, at this point, I, I have to say, I think it's difficult to tell whether this um, acquisition, if it goes forward, will be a good thing. I think we need to understand it better. And um, I think it should be evaluated uh, based upon whether it improves affordability and quality. Um, based on my conversations with Atrius leadership, uh, that seems to be the goal here. Um, so uh, I certainly look forward to working with both organizations, uh, both parts of Optum, um, going forward to enhance the care our members receive. Um, you know, you referenced um, studies and evidence that consolidation often increases prices and costs. Certainly, if that were to happen here, it would, it would not be a good thing. Um, so I guess at this point, I'd have to say that the jury is out. So if I could ask a follow-up to that just briefly. So Optum is part of United Health, which is for profit. Massachusetts, as you folks, your two organizations exemplify, characterizes the nonprofit nature of the Massachusetts health system. Is this a significant, substantial, meaningful dent in the nonprofit profile of the state? And should there be some concern that we will see a cascade of other takeovers in Massachusetts by the national for-profit systems? You know, that's, I think that's hard to, to predict, uh, John. I mean, I think this is certainly a material development as you point out for many, many years, 
the healthcare system, both on the uh, provider side as well as uh, on the health plan side, has been uh, really uh, uh, characterized by non not for profit presence. And uh, you know, from from our standpoint, uh, the national not for profit organizations certainly are formidable uh, uh, competitors. They have a size and scale that that makes them uh, um, really uh, very strong competitors. So, um, you know, I think in increasing presence, it gets back to what I said earlier about the competitive environment here. Um, I think, you know, our combination, um, I don't think really uh, changes that materially, but certainly the increasing presence of, uh, of national companies, um, uh, not uh, typically for-profit, um, I think certainly is a, is a force in the market. So we, we saw the merger of your two organizations, which essentially Thompson Harvard Pilgrim, number two and number three, coming together to be a more comparable match to the number one insurer, Blue Cross of Massachusetts. A couple of years ago, we saw uh, Beth Israel Deaconess and Leahy Health come together to try to form a more equal counterweight to the marketplace power of partners healthcare now. Mass General Brigham, um, have we seen benefits from the Beth Israel Leahy merger? Has that resulted in savings that you're able to see? Because you would see it probably better than anybody as you make negotiations and contract with these folks. What have been the benefits, if there are any, from what you've seen from that uh, merger? Well, I think I'd start by um, saying that Beth Israel Lay Health is uh, is a very important partner to our combined organization, and um, you know they serve our markets and they serve our members in the commercial Medicare and, and Medicaid markets really across the board. Um, and you know we have continued to work with uh, BI Lay Health on innovative contracting structures that uh, best support um, efficient quality. Healthcare. You know, the question as to whether the combination has lowered costs versus what they would have been uh, absent the combination, uh, frankly, is a tough question to answer definitively, um, in part because the combination is still recent. And again, we're trying to measure against something that would have been in the absence. Um, you know, you're well aware that certain commitments were made at the time of the, of the combination to regulators and, uh, you know, uh, results versus those commitments uh, will be will be monitored. Um, I've said before, and I still believe that I think running a hospital is one of the toughest jobs in healthcare today. Um, and when you think about, you know, the complexity, the size of a BI Leahy organization, um, academic medical institutions, community hospitals, provider groups. Um, it's really an extraordinarily complex organization. Uh, given that, um, I don't think that B.I. Leahy has yet kind of hit its stride. My guess is it's going to take longer to really um, fully um, uh, achieve uh, the goals that Kevin Tabb and, and his leadership team have laid out. So um, again, the, a long-winded way of saying, I don't think the, um, the results are in yet on that. Um, I think, um, you know, from a strategy standpoint, they seem to be focused on the right things, cost and quality. 
And uh, we're certainly working together with them um, to achieve lower costs and better quality uh, as we go forward. From your point of view, is bigger already always better? No, um, you know, certainly not. Um, I think the proof is in the pudding. Um, there are, you know, even when it comes to scale advantages, uh, you need to be able to execute effectively to achieve those uh, scale advantages. It can also translate to, uh, if you're not careful, to more bureaucracy and uh, just a, a, a less nimble organization. So no, I don't think bigger always means better. Okay. And um, just shifting gear just a little bit. So the new Biden administration is proposing some significant changes for the subsidized coverage under the Affordable Care Act to deepen the subsidies, to expand them to folks with incomes over four times the federal poverty level. Uh, they're also interested in a public option, although it looks like that may be difficult to get through. How do you judge, evaluate, and welcome or not welcome the changes that we're seeing coming out of the Biden administration on access and uh, subsidies at this point? We support improved access and affordability for our customers. So to that end, we, we support greater subsidies that help people obtain coverage. Um, you know, in terms of the public option, I think details really do matter. Um, if a public option uh, were to compete on a level playing field and resulted for in lower costs for the, the Commonwealth's residents, uh, we certainly would not oppose um, introduction of, of a public option. If, however, it included features like mandated provider rates that resulted in a cost shift to other segments of the market, like employers, um, then we'd be concerned. Um, Unfortunately, that's how some of these proposals have been constructed, which is why insurers um, and providers have raised concerns. Um, so again, I think it, it depends on how things play out. Um, but in terms of subsidies, we do think it's important that people have the financial ability to access um, insurance coverage. And do you see that helping people in Massachusetts? Because Massachusetts already has a lower subsidy structure. so. Is there a benefit here for Massachusetts consumers? Well, you know, we still have a, um, a segment of the population that doesn't have access uh, to coverage. Um, so I think, you know, perhaps less so than in some other states, but uh, uh, sure, I think there's a, uh, there is a, a potential benefit. Um, Tom, I'm going to bring you back to Massachusetts and ask you, as we're now about eight slightly over eight years into the existence of the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission and its sort of oversight of its sig sig signature healthcare cost growth benchmark and, and other kinds of things. When you step back and look at what they've been doing over that time, uh, where have they succeeded and where have they fallen short in, in, in ways that are important to the Commonwealth? Yeah, you know, I think the uh, Health Policy Commission is, it really has played an important role in in using the data and analysis provided by CHIA to measure and report um, the state's progress on meeting cost containment goals. I'm, I'm really not sure we have achieved the progress that we have without the Health Policy Commission. Um, you know, as you know, Paul, as a former commissioner, the, um, the HPC was uh, given the authority to convene stakeholders to testify on their progress in achieving the cost um, the cost goals, and to uh, 
and to put those stakeholders on improvement plans when they fall short. I think this has resulted in some very important and effective public dialogue around recommendations uh, for continued improvement in cost and quality, um, which I, I do think has had an impact. I think where the Health Policy Commission has been challenged is with respect to the limits on its authority and with the retrospective nature of its, of its reporting. Um, you know, in terms of the limits on its authority, I think we've seen that most acutely in its inability to address effectively the cost of prescription drugs or to hold drug manufacturers accountable. I know it's been frustrating to uh, come and testify at uh, the HPC's uh, annual hearing uh, along with providers about uh, what we're doing to control costs. And uh, everyone is there, uh, you know, held to a certain level of accountability with one glaring omission, and that's the drug manufacturers. So um, I think that's been a, a challenge for the HBC. You know, in terms of the look back period on reporting, um, you know, it can be several years behind and, and cost pressures and trends and appropriate interventions can change more rapidly. You know, if we're talking about a corrective action plan to deal with um, uh, the events of uh, two or three years ago, that, that can make it less impactful, let's say. Tom, I'm a, I'm a little bit worried, just a brief follow-up here, that with COVID and really when we had David Seltz on recently, it more or less is going to, the effects in terms of affecting healthcare spending is going to make examination of performance related to the benchmark very difficult for a couple of years. And your colleague, Andrew Dreyfus at the cost growth hearings did say something about getting very high uh, um, rate increase requests from a number of different providers in this environment. I wonder if you have any reflections there. The HPC really isn't uh, empowered to directly deal with those things. What do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think, um, you know, we've seen some of that, um, um, same pressure from uh, providers who, you know, have been felt a financial pinch uh, clearly as a result of uh, COVID, the need to shut down elective surgery and and, uh, and that sort of thing. So we have said, seen that translate to into some requests for higher uh, uh, unit cost increases than uh, probably would have been the case otherwise. Um, you know, I, we part of our job is to negotiate as effectively as we can to try to hold those kind of increases uh, to a minimum. I think we're doing a, a reasonably good job of that, but there's no question that uh, there, there definitely is pressure. Um, you know, COVID still, the impact on premium rates and, uh, and uh, health plan performance is still a little bit of a black box here um, because it's, it's you know, been hard to predict um, what will happen um, with the vaccine rollout, the mutation of the virus, uh, you know, what kind of suppression of healthcare services it provides, and, and what kind of uh, what's the impact of uh, deferred care? So, um, you know, I I think I wish I had a perfect crystal ball on this, but um, I think it's you know we're going to have to work through this uh, for a, a number more months to really figure out what the the real impact is. Let me give you one more aspect of COVID. And you and I have briefly talked about this in the past. We know that primary care doctors in some ways suffered because of fee-for-service billings during the, at least the, the spr spring surge of COVID to have adequate revenue flow. And a lot of them are saying, we really need to move more to a capitated system for primary 
care, which is not only good for the revenue flow, but really good, they think, from the best way to, you know, to care for patients in terms of the right incentives. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, we certainly understand that the pandemic um, and this period of lower utilization as a result of the, sus the suspension of elective care created some cash flow, some material cash flow issues. I think particularly for smaller independent uh, primary care practices. And, um, you know, we also certainly understand that uh, some groups see capitation as a, as a way to address those cash flow concerns. Um, yeah, and we certainly support capitation arrangements, uh, alternatives, uh, financing arrangements that are structured appropriately to reward value. Uh, we have many of those kinds of arrangements in place today. Um, you know, we do think that uh, primary care physicians need to be able to manage the risk of these arrangements, which uh, requires infrastructure and capabilities for them to be managed successfully. Those capabilities vary a lot from one uh, provider practice to another. So um, responding to this concern is not a one size fits all situation. Um, contracting approaches we think need to develop that work for each provider organization. But we stand ready uh, to work with independent PCPs as they move to seek to move to alternative payment arrangements um, even, you know, even more so given our larger scale as a result of our combination. Going back to that point I made earlier about uh, a larger population more easily facilitating these kinds of uh, structures. So um, last year, Tom, the uh, legislature signed, Governor Baker signed a new law passed by the legislature that included a lot of different pieces, but one of them that got the most notice was around telehealth and continuing uh, to make sure that there was uh, parity reimbursement for that. Did they get it right from your perspective? And uh, how do you feel about uh, the other steps going on in terms of behavioral health and telehealth parity for that? I think the legislature and the governor uh, did largely get it right. Um, we're very supportive of telehealth, uh, particularly for behavioral health where access to care um, is often a problem, at least in some regions of the state and for certain populations. Um, we know that delivery of care through telehealth is critical uh, during the pandemic. Um, you know, it, in fact, it's really remarkable what has occurred. Um, before the pandemic, for us, telehealth represented less than 2% of the claims that we received for outpatient visits. In April, 60% of all physical health visits were through telehealth. Today it's about 20%, so down materially, but still way above what it was um, back in February. For behavioral health, it's about 80% of visits today that are occurring through telehealth. And that's remained pretty much constant over the last 11 months. So, you know, huge change in a very short period of time. Um, you know, so yes, we do believe that the legislature got it right. Uh, supporting uh, telehealth clearly was critical to getting us through the pandemic and opening up access to care on a safe and convenient basis. You know, as far as payment parity is concerned, I do think at some point we may want to revisit uh, these policies to ensure that consumers are getting the best care and value from, tel from telehealth. 
uh, we do think that this delivery method should be less costly than in-person office visits. So again, it comes back to value for our consumers, but um, I, I think it was the right thing to do at the right point in time. Tom, you mentioned the HPC's uh, limited power to really affect rising cross of prescription drugs, uh, but is there anything really at the state level the legislature ought to do, whether it's affecting the HPC or, 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 or something else, to try to deal with that issue? And do you expect anything uh, for the federal government to do on prescription drugs uh, in this new Biden administration in Congress? You know, we do think that this requires federal action and we certainly hope to see the new Congress and the Biden administration take some action to curb the cost of uh, prescription drugs. Um, I'm really not the person to handicap what the odds of, uh, of uh, that happening will be. I think there, um, but certainly there does seem to be some focus on it and we're hopeful that uh, some action will be taken. In terms of state action, um, you know, as a very first step, we believe that increased transparency uh, is important. Um, we've supported this for many years. Um, drug manufacturers, and I would put PBMs in this category, pharmacy benefit managers in the, in the same category, should be held accountable for the cost, just as providers and insurers are held accountable by state regulators and bodies such as the Health Policy Commission. Um, I welcome the day when drug manufacturers and PBMs are at the table at the Health Policy Commission hearings. Um, you know, insurer premium rates are regulated by, um, are reviewed by regulators. Uh, we think drug manufacturers should be subject to a similar to review to make sure that consumers are getting fair value and the drugs remain affordable. Um, it's wonderful to have um, the introduction of uh, effective miracle drugs, uh, certainly to celebrate. The, the challenge obviously becomes if they're so expensive that they can't be accessed, then you know, that, that's a big issue. So hopeful there'll be some action at the federal level, but I think transparency uh, here in the state would be the key thing I'd highlight. And so Tom, I have the honor of asking you the final question. Uh, congratulations on your decades of uh, leadership in the Massachusetts health system in so many ways and uh, keeping Tufts Health Plan to be one of our premier and most important uh, insurers. Um, do you have any advice for your successor and do you have any final words of wisdom for policymakers on Beacon Hill and for your customers and the citizens of Massachusetts about what's important to keep our eyes on looking into the future? I guess I'd offer you know, a, a few thoughts. Uh, first, um, I would make sure that we intensify and continue the focus on social determinants of health and health equity, uh, not just during the pandemic, but beyond. Um, you know, I don't need to recite the depressing statistics about life expectancy and disease prevalence in, in black and brown communities. The, the drivers are very complex. We need to better understand and address them uh, you know, let's get to where everyone has access to the, the high quality care available here in the Commonwealth and people are not systemically disadvantaged in, in getting uh, that kind of health equity. Um, a second bit of advice I'd give is to take a collaborative approach to, to problem solving. You know, the state was able to achieve near universal insurance coverage through very strong collaboration 
uh, a shared responsibility model, I think was the term that was used, that involved all the major players in healthcare insurance. I think we're all, we all recognize what the challenges are, cost, access, and quality. But when we try to find common ground rather than take sides, I think we tend to be more successful. And I, I guess the third bit of advice I'd give for leaders is um, uh, to repeat the advice I got from my father many years ago. And that is, don't take yourself too seriously. No one else does. Um, I think a little humility goes a long way in, in garnering support for what you want to achieve. So I guess if I had uh, some parting advice, if you will, uh, those would be what I'd highlight. Tom Croswell, CEO of the new combined insurance entity of Tufts Health Plan and Harvard Pilgrim. Thank you really for both the interesting and wide ranging conversation today. We wish you the very best and we wish our listeners to come back and join us next month for the next episode of Health or Consequences. Thank you.